Good morning, family. We are glad that you're here. For those online, we're, we welcome you as well. And so uh, you'll want to keep this in your hand. There are some places on the back to take some notes uh, as we talk today. Again, if you're a guest, we encourage you to fill the, uh, out the connection card, the visitor part, and leave with us so we can get to know you a little better. Um, and then repeat after me. Next week, Next week. 10 o'clock, one service. All right, it's in your mind, right? So uh, spread the word. Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Eric Norris. And for those of you who've been around, uh, when I get the opportunity to preach, I usually have some cute little cliche that I open with, like I'm the pastor in a pinch, or I'm the B-team pastor, or uh, the pastor wannabe, or something like that. This morning, I would come to you and say, I'm Pastor Eric, the pastor with a passion and a purpose. And I think by the end of the message, you'll understand why, why that is. So... We're in a series on worship, and the seeds of worship were planted in my heart when I was very young. I was probably five or six, and we used to have these things in my little country church called Revivals, and they came around about twice a year, and they could be six, seven, eight, nine, ten, thirteen, fourteen days long. And I was an ordinary child because truth is, when I was a child, I liked church. I liked going to church. But folks, these revivals were a different animal. Yeah? And so they weren't always the most pleasant experience for a five or six-year-old boy. And you also know that I had lots of siblings, five brothers and a sister. And so we would find ways to entertain ourselves uh, during these services. And so a revival service, for those of you who don't know, you invited a guest speaker in. He was usually a great orator, and he had the ability to project, which meant you could hear him. And they, my, in our particular case, they would wander up and down the aisles, and most of the time they would spray most of their words. And so you were also baptized during the revival uh, along the way. And they, they stuck in my mind. In fact, I can remember the names and faces of two of those very vividly to this day. So I, I mentioned my brothers and sisters. So we entertained ourselves. Like one time my older brother found a tack in the little hymnal box, and he tacked my little brother's shirt to the back of the pew which was wonderful, but he eventually leaned forward, and the tack popped out, went down his pants, and he yelled. And I got a free pass out of the service that day, temporarily, if you know what I mean. So, but there was one particular revival service that stuck out to me because the preacher stood up, and when I was expecting this this. Um, this type of service, revival service I was used to, he simply stood up and he started his message like this. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how great thou art then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how great thou art. And I remember two things about that service that impacted me. One was he changed things up. He didn't follow the rules. 
because I was expecting this sermon that would start kind of low and end in this crescendo of an altar call that you couldn't reject in any way. But more importantly, I remembered that he talked, used that song to talk about the grandeur and majesty of God who is worthy of our worship. And the other night, two nights ago, I woke up in the middle of the night to a clap of thunder. And immediately the first thing in my mind was that chorus. And when I go out of my cabin in Colorado and I look up and I see the stars, I've been known to break out spontaneously and sing that chorus because those seeds of worship were planted way back when in my heart in that revival. And it's interesting, I told you I, I remember the names and faces of two. I don't have a clue who that speaker was and I can't recall his face because those words have impacted me the rest of my life because worship is near and dear to my heart. It's interesting that this very place, this church, is where I grew to worship God. I was able to lead worship here for seven years, and in that time, it was an amazing growth experience of worship for me personally. I tell that story because it ties into our series on worship and what I want to talk about this morning. So if you're going to sleep the rest of what I'm going to say, write this down right now because this is probably one of the main points worship is not an activity it's a lifestyle worship is not an activity it's a lifestyle worship is not something we do on a specific day or hour it's something we live every hour of every day so this is the third message in our series that we've been exploring worship in and just to review pastor brian defined worship the first week as worshiping god for who he is and what he's done continues to do and will do going forward and so with that definition in mind the question becomes how how do we live that out and so this morning i'm going to take you through the worship cycle and so on your on your connection card you're going to see a little circle and there are seven places to write down what the cycle is and when you think about a cycle that's something that has a beginning you go through each cycle and eventually you get back to where you were like the like the washing machine you set that thing and it clicks around till it gets back and so it's this cycle and worship there's a worship cycle that i want to talk about and the first two we've already covered uh, and this is number one god is the object of all worship god is the object of all worship and i'd like to make a clarification here that i'm not sure we've talked about in regards to worship to this point because we often refer to praise and worship and while those two are are certainly connected when we talk about worship service it's important to note that they're very different praise is not always directed to god and that's not a bad thing what do you do when your kid gets an a on his test or report card you give him some praise what do you do when an employee does a good job you give them some praise you praise a volleyball team that wins the regionals at manhattan christian college and gets to nationals that happened this weekend right so those that stuff is worthy of praise that's not necessarily god connected but praise connects us to worship praise praise starts us on that journey i used to explain it to my worship team when i when i led worship like this so with praise you just imagine you're in this big 747 jumbo jet and you begin that praise and you it takes you down the, the runway and eventually you lift off until you soar in worship because those two are connected it sets the tone it creates a connection between god our creator and the created 
But true worship is only directed to God and by extension to Jesus, our Savior, and our advocate, the Holy Spirit. But unfortunately, there are lots of distractions, aren't there? Because worship that, that, that goes any other direction is identified as an idol. And an idol is something that takes the place of worship in our lives. And, and I don't need to spend time and make a list. I would guarantee that probably most of you know what idols you struggle with in your life, those things that take the place of worshiping the one true God. But I would remind you that behind that worship battle, there's an enemy who wants you to worship anything other than God. True worship is only directed toward God. Here's the good news. For God so loved the world that he gave. And you can put your name in there. In the Old Testament, that, that, that way was an institute of sacrifices. There was a sacrificial system. And through that, that, those offerings and those sacrifices, those, the Old Testament people were able to connect with God and enter into the Holy of Holies. In the New Testament, Jesus satisfied that sin problem and becomes the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice. And for us today, we're able to worship because of Jesus' death on a cross. And here's blank number two then. Jesus makes the way for us to worship. The next verse in that song that I started with today says this, And when I think that God, his Son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. For on that cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. So last week, we watched a, a scene from The Chosen where Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman, and he, he tells her that we are to worship in spirit and in truth. And Pastor Brian showed us to worship in spirit and truth involves our head and our heart. And when we worship in spirit and truth, it's Jesus-focused, and it exalts the name of God. And understanding these first two points, that all the worship is directed to God and Jesus makes the way, is very important. It's crucial to setting the course for this lifestyle of worship, this worship cycle that I'm telling you about today. Because it's easy to, to, that for that cycle to shift. And once you get in a cycle, folks, it's hard to get out of. That's why understanding those first two aspects of worship is very important. And it's even hard for us as Christians. We struggle with it. But I love the verse in Ecclesiastes 3.7. It says in Ecclesiastes 3.7 that he, God, has made everything beautiful in his time. And listen to this. He has also set eternity in the heart of man. Did you catch that? He has set eternity in our hearts. That's the one thing that separates us from all the rest of creation, is that God placed this something special in our hearts, and that something special is that eternity, that, that desire to want to worship our Creator. And we spend our lives trying to fill that with all kinds of things. Those are the idols. But we are different. And so sin broke the pattern, Jesus restored that pattern, and now he invites us to worship him in spirit and truth. And, and that, that's the head thing. And that head thing is that mind focused on the majesty and grandeur of God and the sacrifice that was paid for it. And that heart is that deep desire to worship and to serve him. 
And that sets the tone for what I want to focus on today, and that's this lifestyle of worship. What does it look like when worship is not something we do, it's who we are? It's our very core. Well, we're given a pretty good example of that in the Old Testament. Somebody you know, it's, it's David. And from a young age, David wanted nothing more than to please his father. That's why he gets the title, a man after what? God's own heart. And so, to illustrate this, let's look at a, a particular event from the Old Testament in, in David's journey. And here's a little background. So, David is now king, and he's living in, in Jerusalem. But something is missing. It's the ark. And the ark of God signified to the, to the Jewish people the very presence of God that he was in their midst. And so David's in Jerusalem, the ark is not, so he sets out to bring the ark to Jerusalem. He takes 30,000 men. Now, I don't know why it takes 30,000 men to bring an ark back, but they set out, and they're coming back, and they, they, come, they encounter some hiccups. And in fact, the, ark's, the ark is on a cart pulled by some oxen, and it starts to slip off at one point, and Uzzah the priest reaches out, and he steadies it, and God strikes Uzzah dead, boom, right now. And you're thinking, now wait... <laughs> That's hardly fair. All he was trying to do was to keep the ark from falling on the ground. And folks, there were some very specific worship rules about how you handle the ark. And they weren't paying attention. You see, the ark was to be carried by priests on some, some pretty elaborate poles, and they had it on a cart pulled by ox. They weren't obeying the worship rules. And the result is, is that David becomes angry. And so he's, he's afraid to bring the ark on in. And so it ends up in, in the barn at Obed-Edom's house in Balaam. Now, here's the rest of the story. If you want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, we're going to read the rest of the story. And it reads like this, 2 Samuel 6, verse 12. Now, King David was told, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. David was wearing a linen ephod, and he danced before the Lord with all his might while he, the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of sound and trumpets. Now jump down to verse 20. So when David returned home to bless his house, Michael, daughter of Saul and David's wife, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father, anyone from his house, when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes there are two things that stand out to me when I read that story one is how did he worship he worshipped with all of his might he danced before the Lord with all of his might and to the point where he was seen as undignified as undignified Folks, to live a lifestyle of worship is to do so with everything within us. Nothing held back because we might look foolish in the sight of others. Now, I don't encourage you to go around dancing naked before the Lord. That's, you know, but with all his might, when you think about that, that's pretty powerful. Because true, listen to this, true worship demands action. 
True worship demands action. David worshiped by dancing when it made him look foolish. Noah worshiped by building an ark when it didn't make sense. Abraham worshiped by going on a journey without even knowing where he was going. Esther worshiped by going before the king when it could have cost her her life. Hosea worshiped by marrying a prostitute who didn't love him. Daniel worshiped by praying as was his custom and was thrown into the lions. Peter worshiped by throwing down his nets to become a fisher of men. Paul worshiped by planting churches and was beaten, shipwrecked, and imprisoned. And Jesus worshiped by leaving his throne in glory and dying on a cross. Here's number three. True worship moves us to act. True worship moves us to act. So what does that look like? What does a lifestyle of worship look like? Well, turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to go to verse 1. Deb took us from, to the middle of the chapter, but I want to focus on verse 1 for a moment to understand this. And I'm going to read, we're going to read it from two versions today because I think it paints the picture for us. Here's the, the NIV, Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as, read it with me, living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Did you catch it? Living sacrifice equals true worship. Living sacrifice equals true worship. The King James begins with these words, I plead with you, I beseech you, which to me is even more deep than urge. If, if I have an urge, you know, I can kind of say, yeah, to that urge or no. But when someone's plead with me, it takes on new urgency. I plead, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your act of worship, of true worship. And so when it comes to understanding a lifestyle of worship, you've got to like the way the message reads with Romans 12.1. So here's what I want you to do, it says, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. When our worship is God-focused, when our head and our heart are connected to God in worship, our lives become living sacrifices. And the nice part about that is we don't have to die. We get to worship and serve God as living sacrifices while we live. We get to live it out in our ordinary lives. And so I want you to take a moment. I want you to fast forward to about 8 o'clock tomorrow morning and think about what your Monday tomorrow looks like. It's probably full of mundane Monday tasks, ordinary Monday. It's probably filled with all kinds of meetings and things that really have no relevance to your spiritual life. And I would say, no, that's not right. You see, when we live a lifestyle of worship, those mundane cast, tasks become a sweet aroma in the nostrils of God. And he, he, he uses those to point him, us to him. That's what a living sacrifice does. It's taking the ordinary and making it extraordinary. It's taking the mundane. It's, taking, it's turning the failures and successes and pointing to him, the joys and the sorrows, the pains, the passions, and to use them in a way that points to Almighty God. That's what a living sacrifice looks like. So when we worship God with our Mondays and our Tuesdays and our Wednesdays, it pleases God. It pleases God. And then something amazing happens. And that brings us to number four. In worship, we find our purpose and our passion. Point number four in the cycle, in worship, we find our purpose and passion. In other words, when we are living sacrifice, we can't stand still. 
and before we're long we're like David we're doing the spiritual dance our feet have to move and our hands have to be at work and we see that lived out in the life of Jesus because when he leaves his deity and he takes on his man bones and he comes down to earth he says this in John chapter 5 verse 19 my father is always working and so am I and I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. That's passion and purpose. Everything, everyone that Jesus encountered was not happenstance. It was an act of worship that would point them to his father. Whether it be the Samaritan woman at the well or healing a blind man. It was an act of worship because he could only do what he, he saw his father doing. That was his passion. And so, folks, passion gives your hands something to do. Passion gives your hands something to do. It's what motivates us to act. It's that thing that, that if you get up tomorrow morning that you would do whether you got paid for it or not because you're passionate about it. And I would tell you this, every one of you have a passion. And I would also tell you that that passion is not happenstance. It's that eternity set in your heart by the very hand of God. It's that thing he gave you to do. And when you live an everyday style of lifestyle of worship, then those acts become acts of worship. And then your purpose directs your feet where to go. So you have this passion. It's your feet that's going to take you to get that done. Have you ever noticed that when God send you someplace he al always asks you to take the first step have you noticed that the first step grows you in your faith that first step teaches us to trust and when we're growing in faith and trust and worship then our relationship with God is strengthened that's the is this vertical that's the vertical part but as that happens, then the horizontal, our relationship with others grows because God begins to use us. Let me give you an example from my personal life if I can. I've told you from the, this pulpit before that I struggled with being a pastor early in my ministry because my pastoral style just kind of didn't fit what I saw other pastors doing. They would talk about the love of their church and how they wanted to encourage people. Truth is, I wanted to kick them in the seat of the pants and tell them, grow up. And so I was having a hard time with pastoral ministry, and it wasn't until I went to an exercise where someone challenged me to write my personal mission statement that I finally made sense of it all. You see, my personal mission statement says, I exist to challenge people spiritually. And in turn, they can tur turn and judge challenge others spiritually and together we'll change the world you see I'm not an encourager I'm a seat kicker that fits my ministry and so as a result I left my church and I joined new church specialties and we would go into churches that were hurting and struggling and I would go in and I would get to kick them in to see the pants and, and kind of get them set on the right course so that when their next pastor came they didn't chew them up and spit them out that fit me and all of a sudden my passion and purpose makes sense well, I got to do that in Portland, Maine, in Buffalo, New York, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Eden, North Carolina. In my first assignment, I lost my mom. In my second assignment, I lost my dad. In my third assignment, I lost my mother-in-law. And in my fourth assignment, Robin got cancer, and I came home. It was hard. And so I came home, but you know what? What? 
my passion never changed. My purpose didn't dim. And now I've been here three years and you've surrounded me with your love. You've let me serve you. I've had family close by who've encouraged me and now God's nudging me and saying, it's time to go again. And so this is probably one of my last Sundays with you because God has set that passion and purpose in my hands and once that happens, folks, you can't stand still and you can't run from it. You can't run from it. So I'm leaving my comfort zone and it's hard because now I'm going and without Robin. That's different. Now I'm leaving my support. That's hard. And I look like my first assignment's gonna be in Rochester, New York. And I tell you, that's not hard for me. That's mustard seed faith to follow God to Rochester because God's gonna take care of me. You know what's hard? It's walk on water faith to go to Rochester, New York in winter. Let me just tell you. And I don't share that to get sympathy. I don't share that to draw attention. I share that to show you how a lifestyle of worship gives meaning to your life, gives you the purpose and passion to do what God has set in your heart to do. It's a gift from God. And we obey that as an act of true worship. And that brings us to number five in our lifestyle, if you're filling in the blanks. Active worship impacts others. Active worship impacts others. How does that work? Well, it works because it's countercultural. It works because it goes against the norm, and therefore people begin to take notice. That's what being a living sacrifice is all about, and Deb walked us through that. The rest of Romans chapter 12, here's what that looks like. Patient in trouble when others panic. Persistent in prayers when others are whining. Helping the needy when it's a sacrifice to do so. Being hospitable, which breaks down barriers and walls. Blessing rather than cursing, even though we want to or they deserve it. Living a life of harmony rather than being a conduit of a division. Being humble rather than exalting myself in this narcissistic world. That's what a living sacrifice, that's how we live out a lifestyle of worship. That's how we are countercultural in a way that impacts the lives of others because eventually they take notice. And they start looking, they say, man, your life looks a lot different than mine with what you're going through. Well, that's only by the grace of God. That's what lifestyle is all about. That's what true worship is all about. And here's what I love about how that, that chapter ends in verse 21. Godly good overcomes evil every time. Godly good overcomes evil every time. Active worship impacts others. And then here's number six. When our worship is lived out in action, God is blessed. When our worship is lived out in action, God is blessed. Here's Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We read verse 1 a minute ago, but let's go back to Romans. Here's what that looks like. So here's verse 2. Don't, do not be conformed any longer because you're living in a sacrifice and you've changed don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. That's being countercultural. But be transformed. That's being a true worshiper. By the renewing of your mind, that spirit and truth, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. That's finding your passion and your purpose, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And as living sacrifices, once again, our lives become a sweet aroma, a sacrifice that pleases God. And he looks down and he says, I'm so proud of you, child. 
just like you look at your child when he gets an A on a test that he's been struggling on, and you say, good job, son. When we become living sacrifices, God looks down and he's blessed, and he says, oh, I love you so. Number seven, when God is blessed, he in turn blesses us. That's the cycle. It's come full circle. When God is blessed, he in turn blesses us. It starts with God and ends with God, but the amazing thing about God is when we bless God and he's glorified, he turns around and he pours it right back on us. And here's how that works in Jesus' own words. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, let me read this to you. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Isn't God awesome? That's what a lifestyle of worship looks like. That's what it looks like when we give and we dance with all of our might. That's what it looks like when we're doing the undignified dance of David in our acts of worship. Is God in turn says, oh, bless you, my child. And then we get to start all over with even more purpose and passion.